Yes, I knew Sister White. We will not fear. The kingdom is alive. The kingdom's on the move with the poor and the meek and the hungry and the lonely. I'll never forget it. Welcome back to A House on Fire, uh, our podcast series exploring the book A House on Fire, How Adventist Faith Responds to Race and Racism. My name's Nathan Brown. I'm a co-editor of the book and host of this podcast series with special thanks to Adventist Peace Radio and Adventist Voices who are sharing it with the wider world. Today, our guest on this series or this episode of the series is Dr. Kale Dewal. Kale is the Director for Education, Disciple Making and Prayer at the Trans-European Division. Uh, I think I've got all those titles right, haven't I, Kale? Uh, the titles don't matter much, Nathan. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it does sound like it means you work hard. Yes, 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 by appearances. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, across quite a lot of different um, nations. I think you mentioned there was 11 11 countries that you work across, or is it more than that? Well, it's actually 22 countries. Whoa, okay. Of, uh, yeah, 11 unions and three attached fields. There you go. So mm. you're based in the UK? That's right, yes. Uh, St Albans is, is a small city just outside of London, and it's, it's a real pleasure and, and privilege, Nathan, to be working in this part of the world. And you've been doing this close to 18 months now. That's true, yeah. It's been enjoyable. Of course, the transition from, you know, warm, sunny Australia to chilly uh, England has been challenging in itself. But, you know, we're just uh, following God's call. That's cool. And, of course, in your experience, uh, these kind of transitions are not, uh, they are part of your story. That's very true. Yeah, that's very true. You know, my wife and I left South Africa uh, 1999. We went to uh, South Korea our Seventh-day Adventist language school system where we worked for a couple of years. And then another transition to New Zealand. We spent seven fantastic years in ministry there. I loved working in, you know, the rich bicultural landscape of Ayatora, uh, New Zealand. And then in 2009, we received a call to Avondale uh, College, now Avondale University, and I spent the last 13 years there. There you go. So you bring a global perspective to our discussion of race and racism. Now, let me put pitch the question to you in this way. Uh, in a few conversations that I've had where I've been talking about A House on Fire and the book that we put together and, you know, uh, so many people and particularly with uh, audience based in the US have got to the point of asking, so does Australia have a problem with racism? So let me ask you the broader question. Uh, as a starting point, does the world have a problem with racism or is it just uh, an exclusively American thing? Nathan, it's definitely not. You know, of course, with the Americanization of social media, television and mass communication, uh, a lot of our lens um, is, is American. But when you travel and when you interact with people from across the globe, you quickly learn that uh, racism is part of the human condition. It's not restricted to any nation or culture or region. It's a global issue because it's, it's part of the human story. 
I'll give you uh, one or two quick examples. You know, even in South Korea, which is a beautiful country with lovely people, and we spent, I spent four years of my life there personally. Uh, I mean, even there, you, you could find differences amongst um, Koreans who are fair-skinned with Koreans who are dark-skinned. Mm-hmm. Now, we might not term it, uh, you know, blatant racism, or do we call it intra-racism within a people group, or do we call it prejudice? Um, I don't know if there are other terms we could use, but but certainly even amongst those beautiful people, um, there is tension between light-skinned and darker-skinned. Then if you think of just the region itself, you think of the Japanese and the South Koreans, you know. Mm-hmm. The Japanese, of course, uh, attacked and um, occupied Korea over many, many years, and there's deep animosity. In fact, just recently, the Japanese prime minister apologized to the South Korean people for the atrocities they committed against him. So, you know, from, um, you know, the, uh, the sub, that little region of South Korea, we kind of broadened it now to the Japanese. And just within that one region, we can see the, uh, the atrocity and the hostility that I believe racism has caused over the years. Mm. Yeah, it's a remarkable thing that where there are people, there are hatreds. Mm, (laughs) And there are prejudices of different kinds. This is something you grew up with. You know, you, I guess, under the designation of the past, you were a coloured person in South Africa. Mm. What does that actually mean? And what were your, you you do mention this in your chapter in the book, but what were your experiences of that as as a young person growing up in that context? Mm. Well, I grew up in in the 80s, Nathan, and in the 80s, the late 80s in particular, uh, there's a Tremendous amount of uh, social political change in South Africa at that time. Uh, the ANC were were still, um, you know, censored by by the government, and so you had a number of other grassroots movements attempting to bring about political change. Uh, you know, eighty five, eighty six, eighty seven. At the forefront of that, from a religious perspective, was people like Desmond Tutu, you know, championing. Um, sanctions, uh, you know, challenging the church, uh, speaking out against the uh, political system. And I guess as particularly as a 17-year-old, you know, my second to last year in high school, I was far more sensitized at that stage to what was happening. I mean, I knew about it, obviously, in my teen years, but far more sensitized uh, in about 1988, and of course, the political climate was changing significantly. And then, especially in my final year, 1989, um, I was just turning turning 18. Uh, I was a leader in my, in my school. And um, one of the first political acts I was involved in was leading a school march. Mm-hmm. You know, our school was called Hillview, sort of situated on a hill. And so, Nathan, you could look out in the distance and you could see the black townships. Mm-hmm. And if you looked across and you saw the black townships, they would burn tires, you know, to, to uh, spread them across the road, burn these tires so that the police vehicles couldn't come any closer into their neighborhoods. Mm. Not just tires, but, but, but drums and all and other sorts of things as well, of course. So we would see the smoke rising. Mm. We could see in the distance the, the police vans and so forth. 
Uh, sometimes even the army were calling, you know. And so amongst my fellow students, there was, there was a real sense that, look, we can't just sit by or stand by and not do anything, you know. So, yeah, one of, our, one of my first political acts was really leading a march um, in protest against apartheid and in full solidarity in particular with, with black students who were, who were suffering, you know, far more than, than we were. Mm. So that's a little bit of a background. Yeah, wow. So that was something you were definitely aware of growing up. What was, what, how did you kind of fit that with your faith? Was it your faith that motivated you to act or was this a, was your faith something separate from that at that time? I tell you what, at that stage, I was really enjoying reading uh, Martin Luther King's works, you know, mm -hmm. and I was, I was captivated. I was stirred and, uh, you know, no doubt the Holy Spirit was working in my life. A broken sinner though I am, the Spirit of God was there. So definitely my actions were, were stirred by, by the Spirit of God within my heart and mind at that point. You know, there's no question about that. But I want to just reflect briefly on the other question you raised, which I didn't respond to, and that was this, this designation of colored by the government. Mm. So four race groups, white, black, and colored, and an Indian. Of course, Indians came over with Mahatma Gandhi, uh, you know, sort of the early 1900s to work in the in the fields, and they're just a beautiful, beautiful part of South African history, South African culture. Mm. Uh, black folk, of course, were sent out into the sort of regional areas where they lived, uh, you know, policed, uh, monitored. They couldn't just freely uh, move around the country. Uh, you know, to coming to work to the cities, they would probably get up at, I don't know, 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock in the morning, you know, work long, hard days and just... Just beautiful people with lots of laughter and energy and passion for life, you know. And, of course, we were a mixture. I mean, my name itself, Kale Deval. Kale, my granddad was Irish, uh, an Irishman, Kenneth Lawler. Deval, of course. And I forgave you for your pronunciation, Nathan. You got it wrong, Nathan. What's happened after all these years? It's not Deval, Nathan. It's Deval. It's Dutch. So the W is pronounced as a V. Mm -hmm. And so the Dutch, of course, colonized in Africa. And so, and I have some African blood in me as well, which I'm very proud of. I'm a son of Africa, you know. So it's mm -hmm. that mixture. And by that mixture of my and many others' heritage, the government gave us this term colored. So that's, mm -hmm. that's where it sort of comes from. Yeah, wow. Yes. Well, you know, you have to forgive the ignorant Australians for their... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> So you you actually live through this real time of transition in South Africa, and um, one of the other aspects of the House on Fire book is the afterword that was written by Dr. John Webster about how the church and his involvement in that part of the story, how the church responded to in the context of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in the aftermath of apartheid and the change of government there. Uh, what are your memories of that time and as I understand it, you were actually a student of Dr. Webster at, at some point there. That's correct, uh, Nathan. Uh, Dr. Webster was just a young professor out of Princeton, and we all enjoyed his classes tremendously. And I still remember them so vividly. He was full of fire and passion. So, mm -hmm. uh, so that's, uh, that's pretty cool. And I remember his dad, uh, Dr. Eric Webster, 
who's also mm. made a wonderful contribution to Adventist Christology. So uh, both father and son have made a really good contribution to Adventist education and have been you know, very important thought leaders uh, in mm. the church. As far as the, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission goes, I must confess, you know, I was, I was really disillusioned that our church claiming to be a prophetic movement, claiming to be at the forefront of God's work in the world, was really on the back foot, you know, was really way behind an, a number of other uh, church leaders. I mentioned two two already, but there was Bayez Noder, uh, there were a, a, a white um, clergyman, there were a couple of other prominent clergymen as well that called South Africa out for its apartheid uh, atrocities against uh, all the different race groups. But in terms of the TRC itself, we were very slow to act. And my understanding, Nathan, and um, I don't recall exactly the dates and the periods for, for the Truth and Reconciliation. I know it was established by Nelson Mandela. It was led by, uh, by Desmond Tutu. I'm not, I'm, from my understanding, we weren't forthcoming with submitting an application to the TRC from my limited understanding. Mm. And really engaging with the, with the process, and importantly, you know, acknowledging where we seriously fell short mm. uh, as a denomination and as a community of faith. So yeah. that was very frustrating and, and disillusioning as a young man uh, when our prophetic claims, you know, just didn't match with the prophetic stance that we needed to take as a people. Mm. Yeah. So you were a young pastor in South Africa at that time? In the early 90s, I was just wrapping up my studies at Halderberg. Mm -hmm. That's when Dr. Webster, of course, was at the forefront of, of leading uh, our submission to, to the TRC. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, it's an interesting part. And his telling of this history is fascinating. But, you know, it was also, there were all sorts of different perspectives of how the church should be responding. and. Um, yeah, that's that's an interesting part of our history that I guess he talks about more in his um, afterward to the book. But um, yeah, it's yeah. I think it seems that there are things that were done positively, and that were there was things that were done poorly, and mm. that's probably often the case in, with the church in history. <laughs> yeah, so true, so true. We, we often yeah we often don't get it right, you know. Yeah. Uh, but but I but I do think that we did more things poorly than mm. we did well. Mm. Yeah. So you, as you've, you've already mentioned, you've spent time in a number of, working in a number of places around the world. You spent some time in Australia and your, yours is the most chapter that references the most Australian uh, racism issues. Mm. Um, reflect a little bit on just the couple of snippets that you shared there and you know, what your observations were in working with us in the Australian context for a number of years. Yeah, thanks, Nathan. It's, uh, it's, it's really cool to be able just to, you know, reflect on one's journey. I remember going on holiday with my family. We went up to Queensland and um, so it was really hot, of course, beautiful sunny day. <laughs> so there was a pool and the kids decided to go and have a swim and I was there watching them. And as the kids entered the water, there was a white family that took their kids further away from our kids. Mm -hmm. uh, I got into the water because I noticed what was happening. 
Mm. And eventually, this family uh, just took their kids out of the water and left. Mm. Now, when I, when I look at that experience, uh, you know, there were no other reasons why they, why they did it. The kids weren't, you know, um, flustered or upset or uh, there was no urgency to sort of leave. But it was just very clear from my perspective that when my kids got into the pool, something changed and this family decided then to leave. And my kids weren't, they were just, they were just swimming. They'd be normal kids. They were just having fun. Mm. There, there was no interaction with those other kids, none whatsoever. And so um, that was just a, just a clear, no words were said, mm. but just the actions themselves. Just, of course, my kids knew nothing of it, you know. Mm, yeah. So there have been occasion, you know, where uh, we've experienced, and I've just given you one slight example, you know, mm. racism in Australia. Not, It's not blatant, Nathan, mm-hmm. from my perspective at least. And I know its history is, is deep-seated. Its history is indeed blatant from my perspective. There's yeah. no question about that, particularly in relation to our Aboriginal Torres Strait people. Mm. Uh, but from our family's perspective, it's it's been sleight of hand, but it's without any question, it's been there. Our kids went to the flagship, uh, one of our top schools, flagship school in 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 the state, indeed in the country, and um, you know. There are a number of times they came home and said, Dad, uh, Mom, um, I was called black, a black fella. Mm-hmm. A classmates and a couple of other people called my son or called my daughter uh, a black fella. Mm. Uh, and the, the way in which it was said, it wasn't a joke, you know, it wasn't, uh, you know, just friendly interaction you know there was there was a sharpness to it there was there was a an edginess to it and the way in which our kids came home and said this to us you know and so we we've had to have a number of conversations with them over the years um because again the school they went to was a predominantly white school you know yeah and of course australians don't know any other designation given by you know the south african government for our classification, which I still really struggle with and, and have serious reservations about just the term colored itself, which I think I echoed in my chapter. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, you know, uh, historically, racism is deeply rooted uh, in Australian culture from a systemic standpoint, a structural standpoint, uh, from a social standpoint. There's no question about that, Nathan. And, and my family and I, in a very small way, you know, in a very small way, We've we've experienced it as well. Yeah, yeah. So it, we have unfortunate news for our American listeners that yes, we do have racism in Australia, um, both in large and small ways, and that that is the lived experience of people who look different. It is also the historical experience of particularly our Indigenous people in a colonised country and their displacement, dispossession, and ongoing disadvantage. Um, over 250 years since the first um, colonization and contact that happened in that way. So, yeah, it's a reality. So thank you for at least mentioning that in your chapter. But 
after sort of setting this stage of your own experiences, your experiences in different places around the world, some of the just the statistical uh, impacts on upon some Australia's Indigenous peoples, you turn your attention to the Gospels, um, to the story of Jesus and to grace in your chapter. Um, how do we make that leap? What's the, you know, we look at the world around us, the experiences, you know, the experiences you've even just mentioned now and all the statistics or the history. How do we get from that to Jesus? You know, Nathan, in our, in our introductory comments, you and I clearly outlined the fact that racism is a global issue because it's a human issue. Hmm. And because it's a human issue, uh, I don't want to sound sanctimonious or too spiritual here, Nathan, but because it's a human issue, it is an issue of the heart. Mm-hmm. You know, and as Christians, um, that is the perspective we would take for the issue of racism. Yes, it is, um, you know, all of those things we've mentioned, structural, systemic, social, uh, historical, but more than anything else, Nathan, it's a problem of the human heart. Mm. And, and that's why for your American listeners, it's, it's, uh, it's um, you know, impractical, unreasonable, I won't say illogical, but it potentially is illogical too, that it's, it's a problem restricted to the, you know, the North American continent or the, <laughs> the country of America. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's a global issue. And I guess because it's an issue of the heart, it allows us to venture into the Gospels mm-hmm. and to look at Jesus and um, his interaction with people as he traveled, as he ministered, as he listened and cared and supported folk uh, throughout Israel in terms of his ministry to gain some insight from him, from Jesus, at a deeper level about the human story, the human person, and the human heart. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you, race isn't quite the same thing in the gospel stories as it is in the world today. You know, we don't have some of the, the strict um, delineations between different people groups. But you have teased it out from some of the stories that we have of Jesus interacting with people, particularly those who are outsiders to Israel. Give us a couple mm-hmm. of those examples and you know, from your New Testament scholar kind of perspective, what what can we draw out from them to apply to, you know, racial relationships, racial interactions in the world today? I think two examples come to mind immediately, Nathan, and that's the, the socio-historical climate within which the New Testament is written. And it's written in the context of, an empire that had uh, just risen to power and prominence and prestige and uh, would be around for many hundreds of years, and that's the Roman Empire. Mm-hmm. And so God's people, uh, the Jews, were under Roman oppression, and um, they had experienced you know, the blunt, uh, the power, the oppression of Rome for many, many years, and that's the, that's the story within which the story of Jesus emerges. Mm-hmm. Uh, Within the story as well, of course, is um, Jewish racist problems with with Samaritans. 
Mm-hmm. So those those are two stories that immediately come to mind. The Samaritans, of course, were half Jews, and uh, the Jews despised uh, the uh, the Samaritans because of their claiming the prerogative to to be Jews and have the rights and the privileges of Jews, particularly worship places, particularly coming to the temple and having the opportunity and privilege to worship. So so right here we have two you know clear instances. The Roman Empire, uh, Jews and Samaritans, that highlight some of the racial tensions. At another level, that's not so dominant in the New Testament. We have the Jews and the Syrophoenicians. You know, beginning mm-hmm. the story in Matthew 15, where Jesus travels intentionally to Syrophoenicia. Yeah. Uh, we have in John chapter four, Jesus travels intentionally to meet the woman from from Samaria. Um, you know, we have uh, Jesus in Mark chapter 5 meeting the demoniac and then sending him at the end of that account into the 10 regions, that the Decapolis. So these are 10 Roman cities that Jesus intentionally sends this man to minister uh, to minister into. So uh, those are some examples of some of the racial tensions within the New Testament under the overarching story of the New Testament being birthed within the Roman Empire. Why do you think it matters for this kind of conversation to recognize Jesus as part of a colonized people? You know, is that part of the incarnation that he so identified with, you know, the least of these, to use that phrase? Um, is there something more to it than that? I think you've hit the nail on the head there, Nathan. You know, God out of all the peoples on earth could have chosen any people group to incarnate himself into and to manifest himself into uh, from a historical perspective. But God chose the Jewish people. And, and certainly um, they're a small nation surrounded by, you know, historically Babylon, Assyria, you know, Egypt is very powerful nations. And uh, so they, they've experienced... Um, Oppression, tyranny, rejection, racism over many, many years. And the same was true when Jesus came onto the human story. So is there an intentionality in choosing a colonized people? I would say yes. Yeah, it's just a, it's an interesting dynamic about, you know, why did God in this plan, you know, as we understand it in, from the Bible's narrative, why did God choose this particular time and place? And, yeah, there's some fascinating arguments that have been mounted in that direction. But there is something about, you know, that Jesus was a poor, marginalized, you know, even within Israel, the people from Nazareth and from Galilee were kind of, you know, they were the lesser, the lesser of the, of the Jewish people. And so there's something about this that just kind of can capture our imagination about Jesus and his condescension um, to be with, you know, not just even to be with, you know, we talk about the miracle of God becoming human, but there's more to it than that. There's political and social and cultural dynamics to it that I just find fascinating and uh, perhaps we can skip over at times if we don't do the work to actually uh, see the context and the times in which Jesus lived and did what he did. You have a reference to a couple of his interactions with you know non-Jewish people, the Romans with uh, the Samaritans with the Syrophoenician woman. What do you get from 
I guess, the example of how Jesus reached out to these people. Nathan, I appreciate your comments there. And, you know, living now in Europe, where Elias people have been dominated by empire over many, many centuries, you know, be it the Hungro Austrian Empire, the Ottoman Empire, the British Empire. You know, now we live under sort of globalization, another sort of empire that is uh, ubiquitous, that we can't really point a finger at, but is still very dominant and prevalent over our world today. So we all live, we all have lived, and we all are living in some sense under empire. And it's, it's really fascinating to think that uh, Jesus, as you've correctly said, comes to take, uh, you know, the lowest of the lowest, which is which is really powerful. But I guess the word that comes to mind, Nathan, is this uh, intentionality in the part of Jesus to connect with these folk that are on the periphery, these folk that are on the margins of society, you know, the Syrophoenician, the Samaritan, uh, even his miracles for, you know, uh, for, Ro- for, for Roman leaders and so forth, uh, you know, the widow of Nain. Uh, and so, and the, also there's this, not just intentionality, but there's this, there's this forward movement. Uh, there's this compulsion. Uh, there's, there's something that's kind of just driving Jesus to actually go and connect with those who are outside of uh, outside of the covenant, you know. And I guess in part, even from a, from a theological standpoint, when we look at uh, the birth lineage, the birth and, of course, in the lineage of Jesus, we discover mm. that his lineage itself is made up of folk from outside of the covenant, you know. Mm. So there's this incredible dynamic of, of Jesus's lineage and then, of course, his very ministry so actively engaged with the other. And he has this this intentionality toward the other, which which kind of just you know warms our hearts as believers, because he models for us um, in his humanity, you know, the kind of people that we ought to be. Hmm. And I guess the other thing, and this probably fits with your focus, even in your role now as disciple making, you know, focused on disciple making. You know, when Jesus, you know, what we call the Great Commission, where he said, "Go to." every nation, tribe, language, and people, or, you know, whatever the the, the technology, technical language that he uses there, and you can give me the Greek. Um, but um, <laughs> he, you know, it was that the, you know, the Great Commission was to go to everyone and that yes. the inclusivity that we see that Jesus practiced in his ministry was to be a marker of the mission of the church going forward. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Yeah, you know, to me, there's something quite transformative in that inc- the inclusive nature of the mission that Jesus entrusted to the church, and he modelled that for us so powerfully, Nathan. Um, and I guess, as you know, uh, as a church, we we really have we really have struggled with the model that Jesus sets for us with our internal politics. You know, our issuing for. Uh, pardon me, are jockeying for power and control and <laughs> position and so forth. Again, which is just so, um, you know, common for us as, as human beings to act that way. 
But we have the Holy Spirit, his presence and his power to transform our hearts, to transform our lives so that we can we can act uh, in a way that uh, that pleases God. And most importantly, it really reveals to others, you know, the character of Jesus in terms of who he is as a person. Hmm. So the other element that you bring into your chapter is that of grace, you know, that preeminent New Testament word. Um, what does grace have to do with race other than that they rhyme? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I mean, listen, so you, 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 yeah. Okay, so my, my uh, hidden intention is now clear for everyone to hear. In <laughs> <laughs> the first Peter 4.10, you know, Peter uses this term, um, the manifold grace of God. It's such a cool term. Mm. It, it's diverse. It's rich. It's multifaceted. It, it's complex. It's polyvalent. It's manifold, you know, the manifold grace of God. Hmm. And honestly, I was reflecting on this on this idea. I thought, man, what it, what it said to me was grace is able then to meet all the, the various ways in which we see the ugly head of racism reared uh, in our immediate communities, uh, you know, in the wider community. The, the weapon we have mm. um, in our arsenal of of uh, engaging this societal spiritual issue is it's got to be grace. Mm. And so, as I reflected a little more, uh, and I thought through the New Testament, I discovered well, you know, grace is applicable in so many of the experiences of God's people. And I highlight there in the book, you know, Paul and Silas. You know, when we're in trouble, uh, when we're sick, um, when we need to be able to do good works to glorify God, uh, all these different facets of our lives, grace is able to make a difference because of its its manifold nature. So I was really, you know, quite excited that grace is is the New Testament antidote for for the problem of racism, mm. and it's it's. You know, I mean, Nathan, it's, it gets down to the core of who you are as a person when, you know, in that little incident, and I've had so many experiences in my own journey, in my own life, but just when my children were treated that way, hmm. in the incident I relate to you, there have been other instances in which they've been treated. There have been experiences that my wife has had. It, it kind of goes deep down into your heart, you know. Mm. And how else can you respond? You want to respond with anger. You want to respond with, with you know, with strong words to retaliate. I mean, that's your human nature wanting to respond. And it's only God's grace. It's only God's grace that can calm you down, quieten you down. And with the help of the Holy Spirit, you know, give you another perspective, give you another angle at that person or those persons in terms of how they've acted or what they've said toward you. It, it, it can only be grace that at that moment impacts your heart so, can you res- so that you can respond in the way Jesus would have you respond. Mm. Yeah, it's a, that's a, it's a powerful thing that this grace is, you know, we often talk about grace as this abstract theological concept. But you're actually landing this with real world application. 
that it can actually transform a moment where you where the human way of responding is one thing the grace inspired way of responding is something different and and i think it's fascinating that we can use that it is the same thing not just you know that this abstract theological idea that we can argue about in church is something that transforms a moment of human interaction Nathan, I'm, I'm, I'm so convinced of that. You know, I'm so convinced of that. You know, one of the things as you and I have reflected on Jesus is just the, the subversive nature of the way in which Jesus engages with people in the Gospels. Mm-hmm. And not just his interaction with people, but the work of his spirit within our hearts. Because it's, it's the same grace It's the same grace that can change the racist. It's the same grace that can change the person on the other end of receiving that racist slur, that racist joke, that racist comment. Mm -hmm. It's the same grace, Nathan, Mm. that's able to transform both individuals' heart. And so this is why I, I wanted to write a chapter that, that provided some hope, that provided something from God's perspective. And God has been intimately involved with the human story. He knows, he knows it better than any of us do. Mm. And, and I, I am convinced, as I know you are, and I'm, I'm sure all of your listeners are, that uh, grace is the power that's available to us to reveal Jesus to, uh, you know, the brokenness. Uh, and the hurtfulness so often in our society today. Mm. Yeah, that's a that's a really important thing that, and I think I mean I kind of there was something I read a while ago that really got me thinking, and I still reflect on it from time to time. Is that w- there are so many different ways we can see the impact of evil in the world around us. You know, the brokenness mm. and the woundedness that many people experience, all the different expressions that evil has. Mm. And at times we try and then apply what seems like a one-dimensional theology of salvation. Mm. But if we're actually talking about, you know, the antidote to evil, it, it has to have some, something to say in response to all the different expressions of evil that we see in the world. And so... You know, that's that's the kind of grace that you're talking about is grace that is transformative and responsive to every evil that we see, not just some, you know, a theological um, sum or a theological Mm. transaction, but something that transforms all relationships and all human interactions. And I think that's a powerful thing that you've described there. As a way of applying this a little further, you know, you've been a pastor in multiple contexts around the world that we've referenced already. How do you bring your, you know, your theological study as a New Testament scholar, your own experiences of race and racism uh, from your growing up and from your life since, how do you bring them into ministry and pastoring and leading uh, in the world that we live in? Mm-hmm. I think for me, Nathan, it's being authentic. Mm-hmm. I think that's very important. Um, you know, connecting with people in the community. Um, I say this in humility. Uh, you're, you're, you, 
you know, you're a pastor, you know, you're a minister. But I, I think it's just that authenticity that kind of uh, disarms people, that lets them be themselves because, you know, you yourself, you accept, you're accepting them for who they are, for where they're at. And that just, you know, builds bridges, builds friendships. So whether, whether I'm preaching or teaching, whether I'm leading, you know, for me, it's about being authentic. Um, and the person I am with you, with, with my wife, with my kids, you know, out in the community, I'm the same person. Hmm. And I think for me, that authenticity um, really just enables you to connect with people. Uh, no matter their station in life, their position, uh, you know, who they are, the title they have. Uh, so for me, I think that's that's core to, you know, to who I, who I am as a person. And I, and I find that I'm able to really build connections, build relationships, build trust. Um, because with God's help, you know, um, I can be an authentic person. And I think part of that as well, uh, with my flaws and weaknesses, uh, no doubt, Nathan. But I think part of that as well is, is, is also is also being honest and upright with people and if need be even forthright, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's not about, you know, being this very sort of nice person, well, hopefully with God's help, yes, but also being honest and, and, and direct if needed, if, if needed, if needed, you know? Mm. So I think that's important too. In other words, uh, gently and respectfully, you know, calling people out mm. if, if you know um, that if they've hurt others, or if they've acted in an inappropriate way, or if they've you know exhibited you know a, a racist thought or idea or tendency, whatever it might be. So, but again, I think in a respectful and gentle way, yeah. being able to be direct and being able to talk to people about those things. I mean, I personally, I have no issue uh, with doing that, and I think as you know, that's part of being a leader. You know. Yeah. Um, and, and, and in that interaction, there can be redemption and, and, and wholeness and moving forward. I think that's important as well. Very good. Dr. Kale Duval. See, I got it right that time. Ooh, you got it right, man. I'm proud of you. Well done. <laughs> See, I've learned something from our chat this, after, this, this afternoon. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you for your contribution to the book, uh, your chapter, and um, for your ministry and leadership in the Adventist Church across the world in different roles across the years. Um, You're someone I appreciate having had the opportunity to work with in a few different ways and look forward to continuing to do so. Oh, thanks, Nathan. Look, it's really nice, um, you know, for your viewers, they're listening, but you and I have been interacting with each other. So it's nice to see you, nice to chat with you. And and thanks, honestly, it's been a real privilege both to you and Maury for, for putting this book together. Look, it's, it's so, so needed in our church. Mm. It's a very important conversation we need to be having. And I'm so uh, humbled to be a part of it and really grateful for, for you, for your leadership, and for Maury's uh, leadership as well in pulling this off. Very cool. Thank you also for being with us. And uh, we'll be back with another episode of A House on Fire, the special podcast series. Thanks to Adventist Peace Radio and Adventist Voices. We'll catch you next time. Yes, I knew Sister White. We will not fear. The kingdom is alive. The kingdom's on the move when the poor and the meek and the hungry
the lonely.